0: Good morning. We're going to, just by way of one additional announcement, uh, we will have a family meeting after the service on uh, December 15th. That'll be our next family meeting, uh, at which time we will be talking more about the uh, facility issue. Um, If you have, if you were not able to go on the visit uh, last Sunday to the facility in Catonsville that we're being invited to uh, consider, then uh, let me know, and let me know when you could make one, and I'll see if we can uh, schedule a, uh, a makeup visit for that. So we are in Romans chapter nine, and uh, let me invite the uh, the kids to uh, join us for this week. Uh, we are going to be in Romans chapters nine through eleven through May. So we'll take a little break for Advent, uh, but uh, would in- encourage uh, the kids all to come with their Bibles. Um, here we have uh, uh, today our, our passage is 9,19 to 29, but uh, just for the sake of catching everybody up, i 'll start us off from the beginning of the chapter. Paul says, "I speak the truth in Christ. I 'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake." Of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption as sons. theirs the divine glory. theirs the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the patriarchs and the promises. theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. See, it's not like God's word had failed, for not all who are Descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. To the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated At the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger, just as it is written Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? No. Megenoita. What does that mean, kids? You forgot? Who remembers? Well, that could be. Absolutely not. No. God is not unjust. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it doesn't depend then on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he would harden. Now, somebody's going to say, well, why does God still blame us? I mean, who, who can resist God? But who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? So what is formed? Say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It's just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord of hosts had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. As we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, this is the beginning of a very chewy passage in the Scriptures. And so we talked a couple weeks ago about Paul. At the beginning, Paul introduces who he is, and first and foremost, I think Paul would say that he's a what? A Jew. Paul's a Jew. Paul's a servant of the one true God of Israel. He was raised as a Jew. He studied to become a rabbi, a teacher of the Jewish people, and he came to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed a the Jewish Messiah, the one for whom Israel was to have been waiting. So Paul's identity is totally wrapped up in being a Jew. And we talked last week about, well, what do you mean by that? What do we read in the Old Testament? What do we read in the Hebrew Scriptures about God choosing a people? Well, we read that he called Abraham, right? Abram at the time, good news is even after his name changed, his nickname was still the same. God says, Abe, I'm going to make you a great people. I am going to make your name great. I'm going to bless you so that many nations on the earth will be blessed through you. And then through, not all of Abraham's children, but through the line of Isaac and then Jacob, God called this nation, this people, Israel. And so what we learn from that is that God, in order to do the work God's doing, calls a people to be his people, to represent him, to do what he's called them to do. And we know from the story that we learned when we went through Torah that, that even though they kept messing up, he still used them, he still loved them. We find that God chooses this people and calls them to certain work, calls them to, to be accomplishing his purposes, to be partners with him in this mission of cosmic reconciliation. Right? What that also means is that he, there are other people whom he doesn't choose. Right? I just performed a wedding yesterday afternoon, and these two people who got married to each other chose to marry each other, which in our culture is usually the way that works. In so doing, they chose not to marry everybody else who's eligible. Right? So you choose one thing, that means you're not choosing the other. And what Scripture says is this is exactly what God did. Right? Abraham had uh, uh, Ishmael as a son. He later had a wife, Keturah, from whom he also uh, also had children. He had some other children. But it was through his son Isaac that his offspring were reckoned. And Isaac had two children. He had Jacob and Esau. But what does the scripture say? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So God chose Jacob. And it was through Jacob's line. Jacob's name was later changed to Israel. Jake didn't really work as a nickname for him at that point. So I think he went by Izzy. So it was through through Isaac and then through Isaac's son Jacob that God called his people. And as we read in chapter 4 of Romans, God also called to be his people and to incorporate into his people from among the nations, from among the Gentiles, from among those who were not descended from Jacob and who didn't convert to join up, God chose all who have the kind of faith that who had? Abraham, right? Because you remember, he says, go back, think with me for a second. When Abraham was declared righteous, right? It says in scriptures, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Did that happen before Abraham was circumcised, before he entered into this covenant relationship with God or after? what happened before right so abraham has his right relationship with god not based on anything he did but simply based on what on faith and so paul says all of us who have come to god through the nations from the nations are coming to god through faith and have the same kind of faith that abraham did which makes us in that sense abraham's descendants Well, you can see how this could create a problem in the early church, right? The church at Rome, which had followers of Jesus who were Jewish and followers of Jesus who were Gentile. You can see how that would bring up some tensions, right? Among the Jews wondering, okay, well, are we supposed to now observe all of the requirements of Torah now that Jesus is Messiah? Are are we supposed to have the Gentiles do that? Do all the Gentiles now need to start following all of the requirements of Torah? Do they have to keep the feasts? Do they have to keep the holy days? Do they have to keep Sabbath? Do they have to keep kosher? Do they have to get circumcised to come into the club? And you can see where the Gentiles would say, well, you know, yeah, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And, you know, if you guys don't get that, then I guess obviously God's done with you. Abraham would, a- Paul would absolutely reject both the idea that God is done with Israel, and that Jesus is irrelevant to Israel. And what we're going to be talking about is just how Paul figures, how, figures out how to express that, how he, he understands that to work theologically. And as you'll notice in this passage, uh, uh, chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, Paul is constantly going back to the Old Testament and giving quote after quote after quote, Now, let me ask the kids this. How do you know if somebody is quoting the Old Testament? What's one way you might know? Andrew? It might have a quotation mark and then in parentheses a verse. Rachel? I'm sorry, say that again. Yeah, that's the, the really easy way is when Paul says, you know, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, right? Like when he's giving a direct quote and he says, this is from Isaiah, right? How else, Kara? The same thing, okay. But other times, as Andrew said, sometimes you'll have a, like a little footnote there, right? You'll have like a tiny little raised letter or you might have something in bold or that passage might be set off in a different, different type. It might be italicized or in, in, in my Greek New Testament, those words are all bold, when they're coming out of the Old Testament. But uh, if, if, you, if you look here in my study Bible, right, when, when, uh, and, and we're just going to spend time with one of these, the one in, in verse 20, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? this there's a, a bold you up here, and I go down to where it says you, and it says Isaiah twenty nine sixteen and 45, 9. Right? Right? Um, that's really helpful information. For one thing, if you suspect something is a quote, you don't have to start from Genesis and flip through each page to try to find the thing. But it's also helpful because when we look back at these passages that Paul is quoting, we can understand the full context of these words that he is bringing. So, so let's do that. Let's go back to, uh, to, Jer- to Isaiah 29. And Isaiah is going to fall right around kind of the middle of your Bible. A little bit be, be behind that. If, you, uh, if you're in Psalms, keep turning to the right and you'll get there. But Isaiah 29. I'll start in verse 13. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth. And honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Somebody in the New Testament quoted that, by the way. Anybody know who? Come on. It's always the same. And Jesus, thank you. Crying out loud. Okay. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Anybody remember who quotes that one? Not Jesus. That's Paul, beginning of 1 Corinthians. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from Yahweh, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who's going to know? You can turn things upside down. It's as if the potter were thought to be like the clay, shall what is formed say to him who formed it? He didn't make me. Can the pot say of the potter? He doesn't know what he's talking about. Obviously no. So one of the things that Paul is doing here is he is demonstrating the continuity of what's going on now with what had gone on before. This is one of the, thing, one of the most important things that that. Uh, a New Testament writer will do when they're quoting the Old Testament is that they're emphasizing continuity. They're saying this is the story that God has been working out, and you'll see that the things God said before can fit real well with the things that he's saying now, right? But the other thing that Paul emphasizes is discontinuity. So Paul will, will cite the Old Testament to point out continuity, but he'll also do so to point out discontinuity. He'll say, okay. There's this story that God is working out, and now maybe we're in a different act of the play, right? And now the, 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 uh, the plot is moving along, and God is doing something that's consistent with who he was before, but maybe moving in a, in a different direction, maybe not what we expected. And after we finish looking at this second quote from Isaiah, I'll let you kids decide which one you think Paul is doing, maybe both. But the other passage that Paul is citing is from Isaiah chapter 45. And I'll back up a little ways so we get the whole story. Isaiah chapter 40 I'll start in chapter 44, verse 24. This is what Yahweh says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am Yahweh who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners. Who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense. Who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers. Who says, of Jerusalem it shall be inhabited, and of the towns of Judah they shall be built. And of their ruins I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Why would he have to say these things? Why would he have to say, that Jerusalem will be inhabited and the towns of Judah will be built? Because they're not. Yeah, let, let let me sketch out the story. The place we're at, and I'll do my best to try to draw this map well. Right? Here is Israel. Over here is Egypt. That's Arabia. And this is this map is not drawn to scale. Uh, <clears throat> because I'm really not good at this. But, okay, remember God put his people in the land of Israel. Jerusalem's right there, right? Anybody remember what happened in 722 BCE? That's not the last time the Cubs won the World Series, right? That was the fall of the Northern Kingdom. The, the, by that point, the nation had, had uh, <laughs> undergone, uh, a, there was a, a tax revolt, a civil war. You had Northern Kingdoms, Northern and Southern Kingdoms, uh, of uh, northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah, the northern kingdom was hauled off to Assyria. Uh, actually it was, was more kind of uh, dispersed by Assyria. So the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And then what happened in 586? The Babylonians took over the southern kingdom. So let's just say that's like here. right? So the people are hauled off to Babylon. They are taken out of Jerusalem. In fact, as the story is told, it's really it's the, the elites of Jerusalem, the, the priests and the artisans and the, the leaders, they're all hauled off from Jerusalem, taken out to Babylon, and they are in exile. This is the exilic period, and, and Isaiah is writing this during that period. He's one of the exilic prophets. You've got some prophets who are pre exilic who are warning, look, God, this is not gonna go well if you don't shape up. And then there are prophets that are post exilic who talk about what happens after God brings the people back, which I'll get to. But this is this is the exile. Right? Isaiah is writing to the people in the exile. These towns have been destroyed. Jerusalem has been vacated. So they need to be rebuilt. The ruins need to be restored. And this is God who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will save Jerusalem. Let it be rebuilt and of the temple. Let its foundations be laid. Now, does anybody know who Cyrus is? Was. He's dead now. Not Jesus, no. He's the king of Persia. Yeah, in, in, uh, so 586, Southern Kingdom falls to Babylon. Well, in 539, Babylon falls to Persia. And Cyrus takes over. Cyrus is running Babylon as part of the uh, Persian Empire. Um, Cyrus would probably not be your typical um, leader that God would celebrate. Right? Like his style was not the most enlightened. But listen to what God says. First of all, he is my shepherd. What, what is the image of the shepherd used to refer to in, in the Old Testament, other than the guy who watches the sheep? A protector. It looks forward to, to Jesus in some ways. Right? Who, who, else is refer, who, is, who else is a shepherd in the Old Testament? David, yeah, right? God takes David from being a shepherd of the sheep, the psalm says, to be the shepherd of God's people Israel. So this shepherd motif is, is used to, to describe leadership, right? In Ezekiel, chapter 34, which is awesome, Ezekiel talks about the, the wicked shepherds, who instead of feeding the sheep, feed on the sheep, right? And he's saying that the people who are leading my people, God says, they're supposed to be taking care of them, but actually they are exploiting them. And he calls them wicked shepherds, and he says that uh, he's going to sort them out. So God is saying of Cyrus, of this pagan king, that he is my shepherd. God is going to use him. in a protecting capacity for his people. And furthermore, this is what Yahweh says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I mean, these kinds of things are usually we think of as applied to somebody like... Yeah, Yeah, and this kind of language is now being applied to this pagan king. I will go before you. I will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I'll give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am Yahweh, the God of Israel, who summons you, Cyrus, by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you didn't acknowledge me. I am Yahweh, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, even though you haven't acknowledged me. So it's not like Cyrus had to pledge allegiance to God. It's not like Cyrus even had to nod politely in God's direction for God to use him. In fact, I think if you asked Cyrus what he thought of the idea that God was using him, he would not have been impressed. But I will strengthen you, God says, even though you didn't acknowledge me. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know that there is none beside me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, Yahweh, do all these things. So you heavens above, rain down righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up from the ground. Let righteousness grow with it. I, Yahweh, have created it. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a piece of broken pottery among the other pieces of broken pottery on the ground. Does this clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say, he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what have you begotten? Or to his mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what Yahweh says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children? You presume to give me orders about the work of my hands? I'm the one who made the earth. I created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens, I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He'll rebuild my city, he'll set my exiles free. Not even for a price or a reward, says Yahweh. The God of angel armies. This is what Yahweh says. So, I, I kind of get this um, sort of latent, subtle monotheism in this passage. What's God saying? I am the Lord. There is none other. I am the one who is doing these things. And even, even if this pagan king doesn't even know that I exist and is, is doing my will, that's, that's a way that I can work out my purposes. I'll use folks who are on board with me. I'll use folks who aren't on board with me. How can I do that? I'm God. And so when Paul says in Romans, in chapter 9, when he quotes this passage Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? what is formed say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? He's not just articulating the principle, which is an important principle, that there are two name tags and one says God and the other says not God and you get the one that says not God. He is evoking this story about God using this pagan in order to draw Israel to where he wants them to be. This might end up being significant as we study Romans 9 to 11. But this question also raises an important question that really is one of the perennial questions that we have to deal with, which is, is it okay for us to argue with God? Now, if it's not, then we've got some bad examples in the Bible, such as, for example, Jesus, right? What does Jesus say on the cross, right, among other things? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right There he's quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out, day, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. I cry out by night, and, and I'm not silent. I, I keep crying out. A whole lot of the Psalms read like these psalms of lament is what the scholars call them. These are psalms where people are complaining to God. And sometimes they're not just complaining. Sometimes they're downright pissed off. Like, God, I, you know, I, I'm, your, I'm your guy. I'm getting beaten up. I'm hiding from my enemies. When, when are you going to come through? And when are you going to take care of me? You said you would. I mean, I'm here. Hello. Remember me? Right? Promises you made. We, we have whole prophetic books. The book of Habakkuk is basically a dialogue between com- people complaining to God and God answering them. So it's not that we can't complain to God. It's not that we can't argue. It's not that we can't share our frustration, our disappointment with Him. In fact, that's part of what it is to be in relationship with God, isn't it? Right? I mean, if you're really in a relationship with somebody... And they say, how are you doing? If you're not doing well, what are you going to say? Fine. No, you say fine to the people you don't know because you don't want them to talk to you because you don't want to tell them how you're not doing fine. But if it's somebody you know, somebody you care about, somebody you're in relationship with, you're going to say, you know, I'm actually doing really lousy. My nephew's in the hospital. It'd be great if you could pray for me. So we relate to God. We're in relationship with him. And so it, it's not like, for one, it's, it's not like God doesn't know you're angry and you're trying to hide it from him, right? That, that's just dumb. But, but it, it, no, he wants us to come to him as we are. And if we are feeling frustrated, if we're feeling upset, if we're feeling let down, well, tell him that. If, if you want New Hope to stay at Stone Chapel, then tell him that. If you want New Hope to go somewhere else, then tell him that. If you want to own a building, then tell him that. If you want to keep renting, then tell him that. You can ask him whatever you want. Here's the good news: like God's not bound by us making some request that's outside His will, right? What do we say when we say that prayer of Saint Chrysostom at the end of the end of the uh, the liturgical prayers in the morning? Right? Fulfill now, O Lord, our desires and petitions as may be best for us, right? What did Jesus say? Not your will, but not my will, but Your will be done, right? When you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, in no way should we take what is being said here to mean that we shouldn't be real with God. But, that's not where it's supposed to end, right? Because if you read on, in Psalm 22. Again, often a story that is not finished, which frustrates the heck out of me. How does Psalm 22 go on? Well, next verse, verse 3. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. And you are fathers, but their trust, they trusted you and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Right Now, you could read this as the psalmist continuing to complain that you, know, you helped them out, but what about me? But you also can see in this the psalmist affirming what he knows to be true about God, what God has revealed through his dealings with his people, through what he has done in real life in the world. And at the end of Psalm 22, we get... I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He hasn't hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek Yahweh will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to Yahweh and he rules over the nations. So not just over Israel, all nations. God rules over all, which means that all of the people who are coming against God's people ultimately are going to be subdued. Either they're going to get on board or they are going to be prevented from doing their harm anymore. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him those who can't keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. See, We can be angry at God. We can complain to God. We can tell God how irritated we are and how disappointed we are. But it can't end there one of my favorite sayings and the least favorite saying among my children is it because is a preposition not an answer why are your shoes there because that's not an answer because i left them there because my sister left them there because i'm irresponsible and want you to trip there's some object to the preposition right <laughs> So whenever we cry out to God, whenever we complain, whenever we mourn, when, whenever our hearts erupt in the pain that we're experiencing, that's the beginning of a sentence that has to be continued with, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That has to continue with, nevertheless, I know that you are the Holy One of Israel. Nevertheless, I know that you will work out your purposes. And so however I feel about you right now, I know that you are my God and I know that I don't have any other options and I know that somehow you are sovereignly working out your purposes for me, for my family, for my community, More broadly, you're working out your purposes in terms of cosmic reconciliation. Because that was the idea. God didn't just pick Abraham so that he could have this neat little group of people who had their God thing going. He said, No, I'm going to bless you so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you, I'm going to undo the damage. That the human race has done through sin, all the brokenness in people's relationships with God, with each other, with the created world around them, all the problems you have with your own conscience, God is going to fix. And the way He said, I'm going to do that is through my people. What's really interesting and what we're going to be exploring for the next several months is exactly how he works that out in and through Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we do not always find it easy to say, not our will but yours be done. We confess that sometimes it's easier for us to hide our own feelings, or to tell you that everything's fine, rather than to relate to you in a real way. We know that you love us, we know that you desire that our relationship with you be full and rich, and so we pray that we would be people who submit ourselves to your will. We pray that we would be fully open and fully real with you, but that we would not let it end there but that we would also affirm that you are God and we are not. We ask that this would be to your glory and to our peace. In Christ's name, amen.